morning, if you have your Bibles, if you'd open up with me now to the book of Romans. The book of Romans this morning, chapter 6, we'll be picking up in verse 15 with a message entitled, Who Do You Serve? Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 15, if you'd follow along with me. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you're that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we do thank you for the truth Lord, that sets us free, and we thank you that we have been free in Christ, Lord, and we ask that if there are any here today who have yet to experience that freedom, that today would be the day of life transformation, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 6 of Romans marks a new section within the epistle wherein the Apostle Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions of his readers with the intention of clarifying his teaching on grace as well as warning concerning the dangers of sin. Through his death on the cross, Jesus provided the cure for sin. And through the blood of Christ, we have been cleansed and forgiven. We've received his salvation by grace through faith. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And because of this grace, because of this salvation, we have the hope of heaven. But there were those who would misunderstand this abounding grace. They saw it as a license to sin instead of providing freedom from sin. They reasoned in their minds like this. If sinning, gives God the opportunity to show the world how gracious he is, and if he's glorified in that, then we should abound in sin so that his grace might abound even more. <laughs> to combat this misunderstanding of God's grace, Paul asked the question in verse 1, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he answered his own question by saying, certainly not. The reason that believers in Jesus Christ are to no longer live a continual and habitual life of sin is because when you get saved, when you're truly born again, when you receive this salvation by grace through faith, you died to, to sin and your old life. That life is dead now. You've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ lives in you and through you. You've identified with Christ. You're united with Christ. You live in the newness of the life of Christ. And one day, you'll be raised by Christ. And now, 
Because the Holy Spirit of God lives within you, you reckon the old person to be dead. You no longer let sin reign in your mortal body, but you present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. At the end of verse 14, please note what Paul wrote. He said, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. The conclusion being that as believers, freed from the bondage of sin, we no longer have to live a life of sin. But as Paul proceeds with this argument, the second rhetorical question is framed a little bit differently in verse 15. It says, what then shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. In verse 1, Paul said, shall we continue in sin? But in verse 15, he writes, shall we sin? There's a difference in the questions that Paul asks. The Greek verb that is used in verse 1 is in what is called the present tense, which describes a habitual, continual lifestyle of sin. But the verb that Paul uses in verse 15 is in what is called the aorist tense, meaning not continuous, but occasional or a single act. In other words, here's the question. If we're not to indulge in sin continuously, how about indulging in sin occasionally? This is the focus of the remainder of chapter six, shall the believer who is under God's grace, not under the law, willingly engage in sin occasionally, knowing that forgiveness will be offered continually. We're not under the law in the sense that we have to obey in order to earn our salvation. So do we go on and live like we always have lived? Is obedience to God's word optional? This is a question that Paul asked, and this is extremely practical and relevant in the church today. What difference does a little sin make? Let's face it, we all encounter temptation. Why not just give in once in a while? After all, I'm not going to hell. I mean, salvation rests on the finished work of Christ. He's not going to reject me. I'm in Christ. The law can't condemn me any longer. Why not just live carnally once in a while? This is the line of reasoning that Paul is addressing. First of all, he gives us the response to the question and then the reasons for his response. First of all, the response. It's seen here right at the end of verse 15, certainly not. That's the strongest Greek negative that could be employed. Should we as Christians plan to sin occasionally? Paul didn't say, yeah, that's fine. I mean, as long, just don't make a habit of it. I mean, it's, it's once in a while, maybe, you know, once a quarter, plan on it. But other than that, no, he did. He said, don't even let that be a thought in your mind. Don't think that. Don't pursue that. I love what Ray Steadman said concerning this. Quote, we discover the joy of deliverance. Then we also discover that the old life still has power to tempt us and draw us back in to its control. We realize that even though it's true that Jesus lives within us to be all that he is, which is all that we need, nevertheless, the temptation is to strike a balance and to work out a kind of compromise. We find ourselves wanting to draw on Christ for the power to meet the times of stress that come the big problems of life, 
but rather we also like to put on, I love what he said here, the old comfortable slippers of the flesh the rest of the time and enjoy that. Friends, let's answer this morning from the text why it is that a Christian should not make plans to sin even occasionally. Number one, sin still leads to bondage whether that is habitual or occasional. Look what it says in verse 16. Don't you know, don't you know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you're that one slave to obey, whether of sin to death or of obedience to righteousness. Whether it's continual or occasional, sin still leads to a life of bondage. To help his readers understand his point, the Apostle Paul used a familiar illustration from the first century in slavery. The word slavery, by the way, found five times in five verses. Within the Roman Empire, almost one-third of the population was slaves. And so vast was the slave populace that the Roman government at one time wanted to put everyone in the same clothing, develop a dress code for the slaves. However, the idea was quickly abandoned because they didn't want the slaves to realize how much strength they had in their numbers and attempt to revolt against Rome. In Paul's day, being a servant or a slave It meant you belonged to your master exclusively. You were the personal possession of someone else. The word that Paul uses here for slave is the most abject, servile term that there is. It meant one whose will is swallowed up in another. Further, it describes one who serves another to the disregard of his own interests. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus said there are only one of two masters that a person can serve. He said, no servant can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. There there are only two masters you can serve today. You can either serve Christ or you can serve the devil. It, It comes down to a choice, to a decision. There's one of two masters that we serve today. Paul says here in the context that there are only two kinds of slavery, only two. You're either a slave to your sin and your flesh, which leads to death, or you're a slave to righteousness, which leads to holiness and eternal life. Whatever we yield to will become our master. A person's pattern of living reveals who their master is. If one's life is characterized by sin, which is opposed to God's will and God's word, then it becomes obvious they're a slave to sin. On the other hand, if a person's life is characterized by obedience to God's word and God's will, it's evident they're a slave of righteousness, a servant of the Lord. Even though Jesus died for our sin and freed us from the bondage of sin, praise the Lord, Sin still brings people into bondage and makes them its slave. But this is the deception about sin. It leads people to believe that they're actually free. The person who claims to have the ability to be the master of his or her own destiny has bought the delusion from the devil who's the father of lies. Satan will try, he'll attempt to make you think that you're in control. He promises freedom, but the only thing he provides is bondage. By the way, this is the lie that Adam and Eve bought in the very beginning. 
You can be like God. He's trying to hold things back from you. He's trying to squash your freedom. Listen, just take this, and you'll know what it is to be truly free, and they did, and here we are. Sin still leads to bondage. Listen to the words of Jesus in John chapter 8 in verse 36. He said, most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. When you begin to present yourself, your members to sin, whether it's occasional or continual, a number of things will result, and they are all destructive. Someone said that the mathematics of sin is always the same. Sin will add to your sorrow, subtract your joy, multiply your problems, and divide your heart. And I would add to that, it'll make you its slave. Sin always takes you farther than you want to go. It always affects not only you, but others. It spreads, and eventually what is in darkness will come to the light. If you yield to it, you become a slave to it. Here's the question, what are we yielding to today? Who are we yielding to? Because the opposite of this, Paul tells us, listen, if we present ourselves to obedience to Christ, if we follow him, then righteousness follows that. It depends on who I'm presenting myself to. Paul put it this way when he wrote to the Galatians there in chapter 6, wrote to believers, and he said this, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. He who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. What are you sowing to today? If we're sowing to the flesh, we're going to reap a harvest of corruption. On the other hand, if we sow to the life of the Spirit, then we're going to reap everlasting life. So as Christians, we don't plan to sin occasionally because sin always leads to bondage. Another reason why we don't go back, even occasionally, to the former life is because we have been freed from bondage. Look at what it says in verse 17. But God be thanked that though you were, that is in the past, slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Folks, we've been emancipated from the slavery of sin. That's why we don't go back even occasionally. It's like going back into bondage. Paul gives God praise here in this passage because although his readers were at one time in bondage to sin, now they had been liberated from sin. They'd heard the message of salvation by grace. They received it by faith. The doctrine that Paul presented, the message that he preached, had the power to save. It had the power built into it to everyone who believes. And please note, Paul said to these believers, you believed from the heart. Not just from the head, intellectually assenting to something. It's more than that. You believed, you trusted. When the Bible uses the word heart here, it's the word cardia. It's not talking about the physical organ in your body that pumps blood and keeps your life going. It's actually used figuratively in scripture and it refers to the seat and the center of human life. The heart, as the Bible describes it, is the center of the personality. It controls the intellect, the emotions, the will. It's the effective center of our being where our capacity of moral preference and volitional desire are formed. The cardia generates thoughts that make the decisions which the mind works out. That's who, it's who we are, the heart of a person. 
Not, not the physical organ, but who they are. That's why the Bible warns so clearly to guard your heart. Proverbs chapter 4, for example, in verse 23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. There is this protection over one's heart because everything flows out of it. I, I, th- I believe this is why Paul said, listen, put on the breastplate of righteousness. This protects who you are, all of the armor, but how significant that breastplate is to protect the heart, to protect who we are. Jesus talked about the heart. You remember in Matthew 15, he said, those things which proceed out of the mouth, they come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. Where does it all come? Where does it all start? It starts within the seat and center of our person, the heart. Jesus said to the religious leaders, you draw near to me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. You say the right thing, you, you, you mouth it, but, but it hasn't affected who you are. You haven't believed it from the heart. When those in Rome heard sound doctrine, they believed it to the very core of their being, being, and it transformed them from the inside out. Folks, listen, this brings up such a valuable point. That is why it is so imperative that we today preach sound biblical doctrine. Sound doctrine, not false doctrine, not watered down gospel, nothing like that, not hyped up messages to, you know, get people into positive thinking and living. We're talking about gospel. We're talking about text. We're talking about the scriptures because the Bible says that the word of God is living and powerful, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And the Romans took hold of that. They believed it. And what happened is that word of God, that doctrine transformed their life. They believed it. They'd been set free from sin. Why go back to that life even if it was occasional? Because sin still leads to bondage and you've been freed from bondage. Third reason why believers do not go back even occasionally under grace. Here's why. It only leads to more sin. Look at what it says in verse 19. Paul says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, notice this, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness still using the metaphor of slavery to get his point across. Paul said, when you were in the world before Christ, you presented yourself to uncleanness. But where did that lead? To lawlessness, which in turn led to more lawlessness. Sin doesn't stop there. I mean, it starts there, but it only increases. Jesus said, it's only a little leaven that can leaven the whole lump. It doesn't take a lot. It's the little foxes that spoil the vine, Song of Solomon says. So you you give yourself to this, but it ends up impacting and growing over time. It, It starts out small, but it has a major impact. Sin only begets sin. The first time. Let's say for this context, a believer decides, I'm going to engage in sin. It's been a while, 
and I just feel like whatever, whatever the justification is. And so they give into it. And first, there's a little hesitation. There's a little fear, maybe a little guilt. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. But the next time, it becomes easier. And if you continue, it can become effortless. Sin begins to lose its terror. It desensitizes the cardia. To start on the path of sin is to make a U-turn in your Christian life and head down the highway that leads to destruction. And sin only will lead to more sin. Example of this, scriptural. Listen, a man by the name of Samson. You guys, if you don't know the story of Samson, you should read it. Here's the short version. Really buff guy, great hair, anointing on his life. Here's the thing. The Lord said, hey, Samson, there's a couple things you're not supposed to do. Don't touch dead things. Stay away from the wine, buddy. And also, you remember, stay away from the barber. Don't let anybody touch your hair. These are the three things. And God anointed Samson's life. When the Spirit of God came upon Samson, this guy was powerful with a jawbone, heaps upon heaps. He slayed the Philistines. This guy was intense. The problem was he could not control the flesh. He kept giving into it. Opening scene of Samson's life, having been told what not to do, where is he? You ready for this? In a vineyard. There's grapes in a vineyard. Vineyard. Grapes equal wine. Maybe he wasn't, you know, squishing them, and, but he was walking through the vineyard. He's in the wrong place. And you know what happened when he was there? He got confronted by a lion. Oh, sure, he ripped it apart with his bare hands and left it on the side of the road. I mean, he's Samson. But later on, he comes back, same path, and there's that dead carcass. You're not supposed to touch dead things. What does he do? Sticks his hand into the dead carcass, and he pulled something sweet out of it. It was honey. I mean, he's got to keep the gains going, so he's eating the honey, you know, getting the, the stuff that he needs. Here's the problem. He found something sweet in something dead. He justified it. As time goes on, what happened to Samson, you ask? Well, if you must know, he had his head shaved, his eyes poked out, and then he died. I mean, it was a terrible story. It didn't have to be that way. The point I'm making here is this. A little sin only led to more sin. It didn't stop, and it never does. Because listen, when you're in the world, it doesn't satisfy you, so it's constantly producing more lawlessness. Why do you think if now you're in Christ and you have him, if you go back, that somehow it, it, it will satisfy? It won't. It's the same result. It always produces more. So why would you want to go back to that? You've already been there, done that. Paul says, not even occasional. It's not worth it. But there is an alternative. And the alternative is this. We've been freed from sin, so now we can present our members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. In the same way that we used to present ourselves for iniquity and unrighteousness, all the effort, all the energy that was placed in to living an ungodly life, what if we took all of that energy and placed it into living for the kingdom of God? What a difference that would make. We, we shouldn't be any less fired up about the kingdom of God than we were about the kingdom of darkness. I mean, we should be even more so because this is eternal. This lasts. And so Paul exhorts us, listen, don't go back. Sin only leads to a life of bondage. We've been freed from bondage. Sin only leads to more sin. But here's a fourth reason why you don't want to go back. You ready for this? It only causes shame. It causes shame. Look at what verse 20 says. For when you were, again referring to the past, slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, 
But look at this question. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? That's a, that's a sobering question. You look back at your life and you look at the fruit of that life and ask yourself, what fruit came from that? It's the fruit of, it's, it's shameful. It's, it's a shame. Every single one of us has things that we are ashamed of. Shame is the awareness, the unworthy actions, and the irreparable damage that we've done to ourselves or to others and the painful consequences that we're living with. Why then would we even want to occasionally go back to the fruit of that life, which was shame, that which we're ashamed of? There is, it makes no sense to go back to that. Jesus talked about fruit. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, you'll know them, by their fruit. Grapes aren't gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree, it bears good fruit. But the bad tree, it bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire, so you will know them by their fruits. Depending on what we present ourselves to will determine the fruit that is produced. If we present ourselves to the flesh, then the fruit of that will be destruction. Oh, but if we present ourselves to the Lord, the fruits of the Spirit flow forth from our life. Things that we're ashamed of. Things that are in the past. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 4. He said, therefore, since Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And notice this, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Peter's saying, listen, we wasted enough time in that life of the flesh. This is not the time for us to waste. This is the time for us, as the Bible says, to redeem the time because the days are evil. I believe with everything in me, Jesus is coming soon. I believe we're closer to our salvation than when we first believed. I believe that the signs of the times are all around us. I'm not setting any dates. I'm just saying I'm looking for Christ because things are ramping up more than they ever have been. If you look on a global scale, we're seeing things we have never seen before. You read it over and over and over in the news. We've never seen this before. This is something new. Oh, we've never experienced that before. This is the largest. This is the biggest. Why is that? Because the birth pains, Jesus said, are among us. And if we know that these things are so, how does that impact my life? Do I think, well, I see the birth pains. I'm just going to go back and just live like I was living. No, are you crazy? That's the old life. That's the flesh. That's shame. You've been freed from that. Rather, we ought to be pouring it on. We ought to be pressing forward for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, running a race, not just to run it, but to win it is what the Bible says, amen? That's what we're supposed to be doing, Christians. And I think sometimes it's easy for us, it's easy for me to get lethargic, to get apathetic, to just get into my thing and rock to sleep and not realize all of these things that are happening all around me. And how does that affect my life? This isn't the time to be carnal. This is the time to be spiritual. This isn't the time to be ungodly. This is the time to pursue godliness. 
That's what the church needs today, a purified bride waiting for the return of the groom. We wasted enough time. It's time to redeem it, to buy it back. Why? Again, look at what Peter says in verse 22. But now, now you've been set free from sin. We sang it today. Set free and have become slaves of God. You have fruit to holiness. Before, fruit that you're ashamed of, but now fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. This phrase right here, it is so wonderful. When it says having been freed, it's the idea that one is set free, that they are at liberty, capable of movement, exempt from obligation or liability, and I love this word, unfettered. Although the act of setting free results in freedom and liberty, we understand that this new freedom isn't a license to sin. This is true liberty for the believer, and we're now living as we should, not as we please. The, the, the tense here pictures an emancipation. It's something that's happened in the past. It's a completed event, having been freed from sin. Not just freedom from the penalty, that's justification. This is being freed from the power of sin. That's speaking of sanctification. And because of that, because we've been freed, now we can bear fruit unto holiness. Jesus talked about how to be a fruitful believer. Probably one of my own personal passages that's one of my favorites in scripture. For me, this is the Christian life. And I refer to it often. John 15, I love it. Jesus simplifies it all when he says this. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Without me, you can do nothing. If anyone doesn't abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. And by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. The person says, how do I live the Christian life? How do I bear fruits of the spirit? You know how? You, you, you abide. The word abide is such a beautiful word. It just simply means to dwell. It just means to stay connected to Jesus, to, to abide in his word, to abide in him. And the natural byproduct, folks, of abiding is spiritual fruit added to your life. My kids, my oldest son and his wife, they moved into a place recently that has fruit trees in the backyard. And they've sent pictures of their trees and they have fruit on them. But I'll tell you something about fruit trees that's very interesting. They don't strive to bear fruit. They don't struggle. Come on, fruit. Come on. I feel some fruit coming on. It's about to, oh, there it is. Is that fruit? Nope, that's not it. Work harder. They don't do any of that. They just simply abide. They are planted. They are rooted. They are grounded. They are watered. And in season, they bear fruit. The same principle applies. The Bible says, Jesus said it, if I will just Dwell with him, abide in him, walk with him. God brings the fruit into your life, into your marriage, into your workplace, into your school, into your ministry, wherever it is he's placed you. It just, it's a byproduct of abiding. Just abide. That's it. He makes that simple. Just walk with me. That's all. Just walk with you. Yeah. Just read my word. Yeah, just read my word. Watch what I'll do in and through your life. 
abiding. The final reason a Christian doesn't live in continual or even occasional sin is because of the price that you'll pay. It says in verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This passage right here, we often use when speaking to non-believers. This is the verse we use, and rightly so. We share the wages of sin is death, but God has a gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's all true, and I praise God for it, but notice something. Paul's writing to Christians in this letter. He's saying to believers, the wages of sin, be it occasional or continual, is always the same. It's death. That's what you're going to get paid, death. Sin doesn't produce anything but death. That's the only, that's the only currency that sin pays in, death. Do you have any ones or twenty? No, just death. You got change for it? No, only death. That's it. So imagine when you earn a wage, you work for it, right? You go out, you earn, you earn wages, you work for the wages, and when payday comes, here it is, here's your paycheck. Does that say 100% death? That's what it says. It always produces that. So if I know that the wages, I'm going to pay a price for this, even if it's occasional, there's going to be some kickback, there's going to be some consequence for that. God forgives our sins. Praise him. He forgives us. As far as the east is from the west, he has removed our sins from us. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, whose sins are forgiven. Praise God. They are forgiven. They are cleansed. However, there are consequences at times that follow sin. The pleasures of sin are never compensated by the wages of sin. In other words, sin is never worth it because the wages are always the same. Death. You say, well, death to what? Death to the fruits of the spirit, perhaps, for a season? Death to trust between husband and wife? Death to children and parents? I, I don't know what the death, I just don't want anything to do with it. It's death. Oh, but here's the other side of it. And this is the wonderful side. I'm so glad we're ending on this point. It says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see the difference? Over here, you earn wages and you're paid. You earned it and it's death. But over here, this is a gift. Do you earn a gift? No, not this one. You receive it. The Lord says, this is what I want to give you. This is what you can earn on your own. It's death. But what I want to give you is a gift of eternal life. You can't earn this. You can only receive it. It's free. It's not cheap. Jesus paid for it with his blood. But it's a gift. You look at this passage, this entire chapter, from last week to this week, and you realize these are real issues that we're dealing with right now. These are real choices. And the question I have to ask myself is who am I presenting myself to? Am I presenting myself to the old flesh that wants to live and reign, or is that crucified? Is that, do I reckon that to be dead? Because sin will still produce bondage in my life if I go after it. And I've been freed from bondage, and sin only produces more sin. 
And, and it only brings about shame in my life. And I'm going to get paid a truckload of death. So I am going to forego that. And I got the gift, man. I want this side. This is the choice I'm going to make. And God gives us a choice. And the reason there's a choice is because for love to be love, there has to be a choice. So here the Lord extends his love. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It is a gift. It is love expressed in a way that no one could ever express love, but you have to respond to it. And the Lord is saying, I love you. Will you respond to that love? Will you reciprocate that back? If you receive the gift, you do. It's up to us. But praise the Lord, there is an alternative to a life of bondage. There is a life of freedom in Christ, and whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Who do you serve? Who do you serve? Will you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we come before you today. Lord, you know everything about us. Lord, you know all of our weaknesses and all the things we struggle with. But Lord, you love us and you died to free us, to redeem us out of every lawless deed. Lord, there may be some here today who've never received this gift. And Lord, it is fitting, it's right to present it today. And so as eyes are closed and heads are bowed, if you're here this morning and you say, Pastor John, I, I can't say that I have received that gift. I can't say that I have embraced that doctrine in the cardia. That is my person. It hasn't affected my life. I might have believed it in my head, but I never received it in my heart. If, if you'd like to receive Christ today, if you'd like to know that your sins are forgiven Washed clean, that you have the hope of heaven. Freed today, the prison doors can open wide for you. Why not raise your hand? And by raising your hand, you're saying, I want to receive Christ today. Anybody at all in this room, if that's you, I just want to pray for you this morning and just lift you up to the Lord. He loves you so much. Hmm. Lord, we thank you for salvation. Lord, we pray that we would walk in that victory this week that you provided for us in Christ. No longer bound by sin and darkness. Lord, you've given us freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with us this morning? Friends, let's, this week, let's present our members. When we wake up in the morning, let's present our members as instruments of righteousness. When the flesh comes knocking at the door, just say, Jesus, could you get that? And he'll deal with it. Holy Spirit, could you handle that? No problem. And let's just, let's pursue the Lord. Not, not just occasionally, but continually. Walk in the Spirit.
If you need prayer today, there'll be those up front that would love to pray with you. And I say this every week, but listen, these people stand up front not to guard you from getting on the stage. They stand up here to pray with you. So if you need prayer, come on up and let them pray for you for whatever needs that you might have. If not, the Lord bless you. We look forward to seeing you Wednesday night as we continue looking at the life of David. God bless you guys.